0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer.
1: This is Marianne Sullivan.
0: And we are so excited that you are joining us this week because this is a very special week for us and hopefully for you. We will be reading a John Yunker original play called Veganish. You might remember John Yunker as the playwright of another radio play we performed called Sanctuary, which we were able to do a few years ago at New York City's Symphony Space and air it on the podcast. Actually, we air it every Thanksgiving because it's Thanksgiving themed.
1: And because it's just so good and and we're so good. And uh, (laughs) let's face it, I'm so good.
0: Well, you are the only one from Sanctuary that has no acting training and you're a superstar. It is true. John is also a superstar. He is one of our favorite writers and creative souls. And we were so excited when he contacted us to ask if we'd be interested in performing on the podcast, the play Veganish, which begs the question, What happens when a vegan celebrity gets caught eating an animal-based meat hamburger? Marianne and I, along with John and his partner, Midge Raymond, a prolific writer in her own right, who has also been featured in the past on our show, will be performing the radio play, and then we'll be all having a chat together about something I'm very passionate about, the use and importance of creative expression as a means of animal activism.
1: I'm super excited about this. And I know that my enjoying things is not the main purpose of this podcast. It's like hopefully enjoyed by others, but I really enjoyed doing this. It was so much fun.
0: Yeah, it was fun. And we actually have, have so so many fun things planned for our listeners this week.
1: Yeah, that's great. Cause uh, a lot of it ha- has to do with, with John and Midge and they're just so great. And so on the flock bonus segment, we have another special treat for you from them and it's actually from Midge and she's going to be our bonus guest and she'll be reading an excerpt from her novel, My Last Continent, which was just so good. I loved this book so much. It's really complex and deep and romantic and and everything. So -hmm. it's really kind of a a love story and it's big hearted and, and it moves so quickly and it's set against the dramatic Antarctic landscape and of course that is a uh, a, a vital place in the world right now and one that is deeply endangered, I just really love the book.
0: me too. And as always, if you're a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can find it on the flock Facebook group and if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for ten dollars a month at our org slash donate.
1: And if you are a Flock member, please also join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month at 4 p.m. Eastern, and that's 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, which is, uh, that's a new time, it's actually a new time. But I, I finally figured out that we stopped having daylight savings or what we started having daylight savings time, it, it changed. Why does everything change? It makes me crazy. Can we stop doing this ridiculous daylight savings time? It makes no sense. All right, I'm going to stop. All right. So at these Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are, are at 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, uh, we kind of talk about how to be better activists. We talk about how to take care of ourselves in this tragic nightmare of a world. And we we sometimes we have guests, and and it's really cool. So if you're a member of the flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates, or write to us at info at our dot And again, these are going to be only on the first Friday of the month going forward.
0: Yes, absolutely, so much fun. Before we get to veganish, since we are indeed so passionate about creativity as a means of social change, we wanted to offer you something else to be excited about: a short reading of the novel The Tourist Trail, also by John Yunker. The Tourist Trail, which is indeed one of Marianne and my favorite novels, is a literary thriller about endangered species in the world's most remote areas and those who put their lives on the line to protect them.
1: Yeah, I love this book. I love both of these books. They, these two are incredible writers. And of course, since since This week involves a lot from John Yunker and Midge Raymond. I need to introduce them so that those of you who are not familiar with their work become familiar with their work. And so I'm just going to do that before we get to the reading. And John Yunker is a writer of plays, short stories, and novels focused on human-animal relationships, as well as an artist focused on a relationship with languages, countries, and cultures. John is the author of the novels The Tourist Trail and the sequel Where Oceans Hide Their Dead and editor of the anthologies Writing for Animals and Among Animals 1 and 2. He is co-founder of Ashland Creek Press, a publisher devoted to environmental and animal rights literature, and you can find out more about his work at johnyunker.com.
0: And Midge Raymond is the author of the novel My Last Continent and the award-winning short story collection Forgetting English. Her writing has appeared in Tri-Quarterly, American Literary Review, Bellevue Literary Review, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, Poets and Writers, and many other publications. Midge has taught writing at Boston University, Boston's Grub Street Writers, Seattle's Richard Hugo House, and San Diego Writers, Inc. She is the co-founder of the boutique publisher Ashland Creek Press, along with her partner John Yunker, and you can find out more about her work at MidgeRaymond.com.
1: Okay, so that's enough intro. Let's get to this reading. And this is John Yonker, and he's reading a five-minute excerpt from The Taurus Trail.
2: Chapter 3. Angela. Angela watched her assistant extend the gancho, a long piece of rebar that was hooked at the end, into the burrow. Doug was on his knees, face to the ground, squinting into the tiny entrance, nudging the mail, so he could get a better view of the five-digit number on the stainless steel band wrapped around the penguin's left flipper. Three, four, six, two, seven, Doug shouted over the wind. Doug was in his mid-twenties and, like most naturalists his age, looked more the part than old-timers like Angela, his senior by a decade. While she stomped around in worn tennis shoes and faded thrift shop khakis, he was a walking REI catalog. Waterproof boots, camouflage pants with more pockets and objects to fill them, an Indiana Jones hat shoving his messy blonde hair down over his ears, a blue bandana around his neck. He was the type of assistant. You say assistant, I say wingman, Doug liked to say. That kept Angela's program running year after year, fresh from the classroom and eager for an unpaid adventure. Too young still to find the trip down here tedious, the ten-hour flight to Buenos Aires the two-hour flight to Treleo, the four-hour bus ride on a gravel road to the research station. And it wasn't much of a research station at that. Two cinder block huts, one shower, and a public restroom they shared with the tourists who stopped to pay their admission fees and to shop for postcards and keychains. Angela studied Magellanic penguins, named by Ferdinand Magellan in the 16th century when the Europeans were busy naming the planet after themselves. At last count, Punta Verde was populated by 200,000 breeding pairs, Account Count Angela was in the process of updating. The Magellanic species was the largest of the warm weather penguins, its beak reaching the height of an adult human's knee, its dominant features the black, upside-down horseshoe mark on its white belly, and a circular white stripe that curved up either side of its neck to its eyes. Each penguin had a different pattern of black spots on its belly that tourists often mistook for dirt. This was not the penguin to inspire movies or stuffed animals. It was not as majestic as an emperor, nor as colorful as a macaroni. It lived in the dirt and the muck of wet spring days, snapped at hands that got too close, and often honked incessantly, emitting the sounds of a donkey, earning it the nickname Jackass Penguin. But even jackasses needed people to look after them. You get that? Doug asked. Three, four, six, two, seven, Angela repeated back without looking up. She leafed through her notebook, her little black-and-white book, as she called it, looking for the five-digit number. She'd tagged thousands of birds over her 15 years at Punta Verde. Every penguin fitted with a tag was listed here, with a number, place, and date. Yet despite such a wealth of data, most numbers were entered once and never again revisited. Tagging a penguin was akin to putting a note in a bottle, tossing it out to sea, and waiting for it to return at night. It wasn't enough for the penguins to come home. Angela also had to find each one among thousands and thousands of nests. Did you hear that? Doug asked. Hear what? Sounded like an engine, a boat engine. Angela looked up and tilted her head back and forth. Must be the wind, she said. She returned to her book. Red dot? Doug asked, hopefully. Angela didn't answer right away. While finding a tagged bird was not as statistically significant as winning the lottery, it certainly felt that way at times. And the greatest jackpot of all was when they discovered a red dot bird. A red dot bird was a known age bird, one that had been tagged the year it was born and hadn't been seen since. Young penguins typically spent four to seven years at sea before they reached breeding age and returned to their colonies. Yet not all penguins returned, and the reasons had been haunting researchers for years. Because red dot birds had been tracked since birth, Angela and the other naturalists knew more about them than about any other tagged bird, and they still wished they knew more. But they took what they could get, recorded what they could measure. Whether five years or 20 had passed, Finding a red dot bird always felt like a family reunion. But she was beginning to hope that this bird was not a red dot. She was reluctant to let Doug handle the bird, even though she knew he was due. It was a natural order of things for researchers to pass on their knowledge and skills. Once they found a red dot, they had to weigh it, then measure its feet and the density of feathers around its eyes. Doug hadn't yet weighed a penguin. And once he did, it would be one less thing he needed to learn from her, one less reason to join her on these trips, one day closer to not needing her at all. Not that he'd ever needed her to begin with. The life of a naturalist was a lonely one, spent more with animals than with people. This was what Angela had wanted, and at 36, she did not harbor any illusions about having children, the birds were children enough, but she did have her illusions about Doug.
1: Oh, that just it gives you a taste of how good this book is, mm-hmm. and I really hope if you haven't read it yet, you, you set aside the time to do so. I know I have so much trouble setting aside time to read, but once I do, it just makes me so much happier in the world. So to get the audiobook or purchase a physical copy, you can go to thetouristtrail.com.
0: Yeah, that was so fun. And so is what we have for you next. So let's get right to that. Veganish is a play also by John Younger, and we are thrilled that it is making its theatrical debut right here on our hen house. You'll hear myself, Marianne, John, and Midge reading in Veganish the Play, along with an energetic and fun chat before and after about why fiction and plays are such an important way of changing the world for animals. Here is Veganish. welcome back to our henhouse, john and midge thank you jasmine
2: thanks jasmine
0: so excited to have both of you back and marianne's here too we're on the same on the same conversation look at that <laughs> i'm super excited about what we're going to be doing today which is a, a radio play and marianne and i were just chatting about it and marianne said you know john's my personal playwright right <laughs> <laughs> uh, because john you were also the playwright for sanctuary which which basically is uh we we play every year on thanksgiving mm-hmm. which we were able to perform live at symphony space in new york city and um and it plays on the our henhouse podcast every year which is so fun and we really are very bonded in our understanding of the importance of creative outlets as a means to change the world for animals. So I I like practically jumped up and down when I got your email saying you had a play and are we interested?
2: Great, great! I'm I'm thrilled actually. This one is uh, near and dear as they all are. But I I it occurred to me recently that this might be a great fit for you two, and and mm. I'm glad we're performing it.
0: Me too. We'll chat about it after we read the play together. But just for context, let's talk about about the two of you and, and, and how you fit, how you fit together and how you fit in the world. So you've both been at our, our house before, actually, multiple times. And you recently also gave a uh, teach in to our flock for our flock Friday about uh, writing for animals, which I loved. So amongst other things, you run Ashland Creek Press. Can you just give our listeners a glimpse into what Ashland Creek Press is?
2: Sure, I'll let Midge take that one. (laughs) 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 She's better at it than I am.
3: Not really, but I will say Ashland Creek Press is 10 years old this year. So we started 10 years ago and that was around the time we moved to Ashland, hence the name. And we noticed that there were at the time just sort of a dearth of, of books about veganism and environmental issues and animal protection, mostly in the fiction realm. And so it, we started it with John's book, The Tourist Trail, which had been uh, unable to find a home in the among the big five publishers. And so we started opening it up to other other authors and found an amazing collection of books. And we've published about 30 books in the last 10 years. We've slowed down a little bit because we've been doing our own writing and, and we started the Siskiyou Prize for New Environmental Literature. So we're just moving right along and it's great. The nice thing is that there is more and more environmental literature out there among all publishers, but mm-hmm. we still are keeping ourselves busy. I think there, you can never have too many books about animals and the environment out there, especially fiction, um, especially things that make that connection between what we eat and how we live in the world. And we think that's especially important
2: one of the things that drives us nuts and we really are I guess is one of the things we're trying to change is this idea of what is environmental literature. And that's what the Siskiyou Prize is around is is about. It's called the the prize for new a new environmental writing. Is that right, Mitch? <laughs> Sorry. But the idea is that Historically, environmental writing—I—I I hate reading books that are that are environmental. That is that are about fishing or hunting. You know, this idea that the way you get closer to nature is by killing nature, and we're really trying to redefine that. And and it's we're—I feel like in the past few years there's been this this awakening, if you will, uh, among people that read environmental writing. So it's it's really inspiring. I, it's been the first—I'd say the first seven years were really hard. But the past three years have been, I don't know, there's been a, there's been a sea change, definitely. And, mm. and obviously, climate change is part of it. Certainly, the growth of the vegan-slash-plant-based uh, food market has, you mm. know, it, people have realized it's not as hard to be vegan now as it used to be. So I think there's a lot of factors coming together, but it's it's been a great time to, to be a writer and, and a publisher.
0: Oh, that's super cool, and you're and you're also partners in life. How 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 is that going? <laughs> well, you don't have to tell us, um, but I wanted to I wanted to contextualize like your your business partners and partners in life. But yeah, I probably haven't had a, enough coffee yet today uh, because I just gave the rest of my coffee to Marianne for some reason. So let's blame let's just blame Marianne for any crap.
2: No, it's it's actually I would I will say it's it's been great. It's um you know we're still together, so that says it's it's. <laughs> No, but I think we help each other because we're both writers too, and and we live a life of rejection, as you two know, I'm sure. It, it's important to have someone close to you that you can bounce things off of, that can tell you not to give up, to keep writing, to keep publishing, and we're we're on this journey together, and it really it really yeah. does help because it's not it's not easy. There is a lot mm. of, it's still a very steep uphill climb that we're all on.
1: Yeah. I'm really excited to hear that that you're kind of confirming the sense that people have in the movement generally that people are starting to wake up a little bit more about mm-hmm. the fact that animal rights and then protecting the environment are not separate issues that they actually kind of <laughs> yeah. go together, which seems to be a like a, just an alarming blind spot. But I hadn't realized until you said it, that that was also happening on the fictional realm. So, so that's very, very reassuring to hear because mm-hmm. I think that's an area that, that, is underrated in how much influence it can have on the culture and how much it reflects where the culture is, and and so that's that's great to hear. And I, in, in addition to all of the other factors uh, leading up to this, uh, I, I'm going to count your work in there. You've been doing it for seven years, and the world's starting to shift. That that sounds like an impact to me. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, as a writer, a reader, we didn't really we're we're publishing what we want to read basically and it's and it's important i think that that you know as vegans and and uh, aspiring vegans all start you know you start to look out look for vegan food you read the labels i think it's just as important for readers to start saying is this vegan is this author vegan mm-hmm. is this book vegan is mm-hmm. you know it's a similar dynamic you know yeah. just like the food feeds your your body the literature feeds your soul and it's hard to find the readers to connect to them because we're such a a niche Within a niche, uh, you know, I often say you can't go to a bookstore and say, uh, "Show me the vegan literature section." <laughs> they'll they'll send you to the cookbooks. That's it. You right. know, you can't. It doesn't exist. Uh, so yeah, it's it, that's what we're up against still.
1: And we all know how disheartening it is to read a, a book of fiction that you love, and maybe that you love in your former life, and that is precious to you in so many ways, and yet the characters are constantly unthinkingly sitting down eating animal carcasses. You have to just (laughs) constantly like put that out of your mind and and go forward and still care about this character. So it's just such a delight to read literature in which people are at least contemplating this issue. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I I echo what Marianne said about how Ashland Creek Press is been a a big part of that change. Tell us a little bit before we get into the play, which I do want to get into, but tell us a little bit about something that each of you personally wrote that you're most proud of. Let's start with Midge.
3: Well, my most recent book is called My Last Continent and it's a novel. And I think I, I look, I I would say that's probably what I'm most proud of now because it's a novel and I'm not now novel writing doesn't come naturally to me. as as much as short stories do. I was a short fiction fiction writer for about 10 years before I finally came up with a novel. So that was an accomplishment. But the thing I like about it is that both of the main characters are vegan. And that is something that a lot of my short stories, I didn't think about it. And it was partly because that was my former life before I became vegetarian and vegan you won't find a lot of meat eaters in, in my short stories. Um, but if there's food, I, you know, I didn't think about having what people ate when I used to write and now I can't not think about it. And so Mm -hmm. even if I'm not purposely writing a book that has a vegan character or stories that have vegan characters, I just leave it out of it so that, you know, so it's not there, you know. And if if I'm able, I'll make it a part of that character. What I like about what we try to do at Ashland Creek Press is is to make sure that vegan characters are depicted as simply characters, not some sort of fringe characters, not some wild environmental people. Um, my dad to this day sometimes uses the word wacko when he's describing <laughs> our vegan lifestyle, and it's pretty hilarious because there, you know, there's still a lot of people like that in the world. So uh, normalizing it is something that we love doing it or highlighting it in a very purposeful way. So anyway, my last continent, it was one of those things where um, I did a lot of research. It's about a scientist uh, who works in Antarctica. It's about a shipwreck and there's a love story. So there's a lot to it, but I made a point of making my main character and her love interest vegan because I actually didn't encounter a lot of vegans in the scientific community. So among people who study the oceans and know what overfishing does and pollution and animal agriculture and all that, they still don't eat the way you would think they might knowing all that. So I wanted to make that a part of the book. And it's a little more subtle in My Last Continent, but still I'm I'm happy to have done that.
0: It's a great book.
3: Thank you. And I talked to you about it a while ago, Jasmine, which was yeah. super
0: fun. a great yeah. adventure story, a great love story. We loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think it's really cool too because that was a big publisher. I actually talked to John about this recently. I called him to bend his ear about, you know, the 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 perks and and the challenges of the big versus small publishers, but that was a big publisher and you all run a small publisher and I think it's really cool that like you're sort of all over the board when it comes to creating books writing books editing books making them happen uh like working with agents working without agents all basically all of it you are a one-stop shop for (laughs) however you want to get a book out there so uh i i have one more question for you midge and then i want to hear from john about what your what you're most proud of that you've written but midge what would you say is like your a go-to tip that you would have for anyone listening to this who is like really enjoys writing and, and, and wants to get a book out there, but isn't sure how to do it, like where to even start? Cause it's a lot of people, right? Like a lot of people feel they have a book in them and they m- maybe even want to get the animal rights message out there through a book. They don't know where to start. What would you say?
3: Well, I would say for one, just write all the time, read all the time, Well, take Writing for Animals, our class, if you're interested in animals. We put that together, and the greatest pleasure for us is meeting writers who want to advocate for animals through their work. So that is a great way um, to meet other like-minded writers. As John was saying, we're all part of a world, and if you're a writer who advocates for animals, it's a doubly tough thing because you're living in this world where we see all the suffering and we're working so hard to change that world at the same time, you're a writer and you're facing all this rejection. And so it's really Mm -hmm. like a doubly tough life. So it's Mm -hmm. been writing for animals has been really great for us not only um, to bring it out there, but also to connect with all these other writers and animal advocates. We all really need each other and it's really a great supportive community. We've done two classes so far and we're trying to keep the alumni community together. But I'd recommend taking any writing class. I would recommend um, reading everything you can. John set up a great website called Ecolit Books where we have um, about eight to 10 contributors um, from all over who review books from everywhere, every publisher, not just us for sure, that are environmental, animal protection, vegan, etc. So that's a good place to start if you're looking for a good you know, a good novel that has to do with animal rights. Also, just keep your vision what you want. You know, there's a great line by Stephen King who said, write with the door closed and revise with the door open. So what I would advise students is to write what you want to write, pay attention to nothing and no one and and listen to your muse only and write whatever whatever you have to say. And then when it comes time to think about where am I going to publish this? Do I want a big publisher? Do I need to find an agent? Do I want to go with a small press? Then you think more about audience and you open that door and start to think about, okay, you know, I can tell you with My Last Continent, there were a few scenes that got cut because they were scenes that I don't think I would have cut as an editor at Ashton Creek Press. But Mm -hmm. you know, for a mainstream novel, for a mainstream publisher, it was just a little too out there. And it was uh, was veganism. So um, Mm -hmm. your audience becomes important at a certain point, but you shouldn't edit yourself until that point. How can people take your class? Well, writing for Animals, if you go to ashlandcreekpress.com, we don't have another class scheduled, but if you're interested, just email us and we'll put you on a mailing list. And we're to offer another one in the fall. We figure that with vaccination happening, people are going to be running around outside playing all summer. We're going to wait until the fall to offer our next one. We do plan this for this to be an ongoing thing. So yeah, visit us at com and join the mailing list and stay in touch. And also their Ecolit Books has a mailing list as well. If, if you're interested in book reviews and what's going on in the world of literature, we have a lot of great contributors from so many walks of life, you know, academic or just, you know, regular people who read fiction. Um, everyone has a specialty. We have one contributor who reviews just about every dog book that comes out, you know? So there's a big variety of, of hmm. stuff out there, which is fun, yeah.
0: So John what about you what's something you've written that you're proud of?
2: Uh, well gosh. I would probably fall back on the tourist trail, probably because it was
1: It's so good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, thank you. And and thank you too. You guys were, you know, it was it was a transformational book in a lot of ways personally. Uh, because I was tra- you know, I was changing as I wrote it, uh, you know, during the course of researching. And I remember I went to, uh, to LA for one of the farm animal conferences. This is a long time ago. And I was, well, researching Paul Watson and I was fortunate enough to meet him there and, and listen to him. But during the course of that conference, which of course ended up in the book, uh, I met so many other activists and I just, my eyes were open so wide. It, it was life changing, and so the book reflects me. So I, whenever I look back at that book, I, I think of me, and I also think of you know I couldn't find a publisher for it, so that gave birth with with Midge's help to Ashland Creek Press. So it, it it's significant uh, to me in a lot of ways, and and when I look at it now, I just think of what a what a long. A strange journey it's been, and 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 Midge mentioned advice. I mean, my advice was with the tourist trail. I could have given up. I'm stubborn. Be stubborn. You got to be stubborn. Uh, and I hate rejection. I hate it more than words can 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 describe. Midge takes it much better than I do. I mean, we're still we're still getting rejected. I've got two short stories that I keep sending out and keep getting rejected on it. It never ends. That is the life of the writer. But you just can't give up and that's my number one advice for for all writers
0: good advice really good advice and i guess i'll just add to that like develop a writing regimen and stick with it like no matter what that needs to override everything else procrastination tendencies chores that need to get done i i wrote about that recently on my newsletter jasmine's jargon for anyone who's interested I have a whole article on this that just came out so you can find that on jasminesinger.substack.com and i talked all about it because i think that some folks think think that there's writers and then there's everyone else but i tend to think we're it, there's not a division there's like we're all just people <laughs> like who who are doing the best we can to put words on paper but the the trick to that is actually doing it right. and that's to me it the, that to me is the big secret so to, to being a writer is 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 writing
3: so
0: mm-hmm. with that said uh, i have a few more questions but i think we should read the play and then talk about the play the play that we're about to read and this is our first time all reading it together is called veganish and do you want to just give us a little brief synopsis before we jump in
2: i've written one down i don't even have that synopsis in oh form. i actually
0: have it oh have good because i'm
2: yeah. not I'm, uh, I'm horrible at synopsizing if if that's all
0: i am too. too so people are like what's your book about and i just Start <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Read it and then tell me what it's about. I think that people can kind
1: of... Uh... I, I'm not sure it needs to be synopsized. All right, let's is not that not a word?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I like <laughs>
3: yeah. it. Though. I think it speaks
0: for itself. Okay, well
1: let's then let's do it.
0: Out. All right, then let's let's do.
3: The Our Henhouse Players present Veganish, a radio play. We open on Dee and Jessica seated in a restaurant in Portland, Oregon. Dee is eyeing the untouched burger on her plate. What
0: are those tiny orange bits? Carrots. No a burger. That's why they call it a veggie burger. Uh, but I need my protein. You'll get just as much protein from that veggie burger as you would from a meat burger, but with none of the cholesterol. Yeah, and
2: none
1: of the flavor. It's an acquired taste. I already acquired a taste for real burgers.
0: Do you realize that animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gases than all forms of transportation combined? That if everyone simply gave up eating meat, we could stop global warming in its tracks? Why
1: is it that every conversation between us gets interrupted by a public service
0: announcement? (sighs) This is important to me, Dee. Why can't you see that? I I see it. I'm just having a hard time eating it. Maybe this was a mistake. What do you mean? This, expecting my newlywed to embrace my way of life. I thought we were in this for better or for worse.
1: We are, Jess. We are. I guess I just wish for worse came with a little bacon on top. Hey, why does that guy over there look so familiar? Where? Over there, in the corner, eating alone, in the
0: sunglasses. Oh my, I think that it is. That's Blake Winters. No. Are you sure? I read that he's in town shooting of a new film. Did you know that he's dating Selma Hayek?
1: Did you know that he's vegan? I wonder if he's waiting for Selma to join him.
0: I've got to get my camera ready. He was such an inspiration to me. You know, he was the reason I gave up eating meat in the first place.
1: So he's to blame.
0: What did you say? You should go over and ask for his autograph. No, I can't do that. Why not? I don't want to make a scene. That would be silly. That would be such a cliche. That would... That's odd. What? He's eating a burger. A veggie burger? A that's no veggie
1: burger. Maybe the chef made him something special. Jessica, where are you going?
0: I have to find out. I thought you didn't want to make a scene. It's not as if I'm asking for his autograph. I- excuse me, Blake? Yes? I- I'm sorry to interrupt you. I- I'm Jessica. I'm a I'm a big fan.
2: Oh, I- I'm happy to hear that.
0: I wanted to know... I, I-, I-, I wanted... To- I, I I wanted to. She she wanted to ask you if you were enjoying your burger. Are you enjoying your burger?
2: I am.
0: This is my wife. I,
1: is Salma meeting you here? No. Is Salma in
0: town? In, in the neighborhood? Is that a veggie burger?
2: Oh uh, yeah, sure.
0: I, I I don't think so.
2: You want to taste it?
0: May I? That is the cattle drive special. I'd know it anywhere.
2: Uh, Okay, fine, you got me. It's not a veggie burger.
0: But you're vegan.
2: And let me take a wild guess, you are too?
0: Yes, I am.
2: I see, well, when you've been on the road as much as I am, it's not always so easy to eat vegan all the time.
0: This is Portland. There are four vegan restaurants within a mile of here.
2: Yeah, well, uh, this restaurant was the closest.
0: There's a vegan burger on the menu.
2: Oh, I must have missed that.
0: Consider yourself lucky.
2: Look, uh, Jessica, is it? I never said I was a perfect vegan.
0: You're not a vegan at all. Is that bacon? I I can out you. I should out you.
2: And say what?
0: That Blake Winters is a closet carnivore.
2: And then what?
0: (laughs) You'll lose all your vegan fans. All 10 of them. I can't believe this. You're a leader in the movement, a spokesperson for PETA. Does anyone else know?
2: About what?
0: About this, this, this lie.
2: I'm not lying.
0: Of course you are.
2: Were you born vegan?
0: I recently converted.
2: So before that, you ate meat?
0: Oh, I didn't like it.
2: That wasn't my question.
0: I see what you're doing. You're trying to turn this around on me.
2: I'm only asking how you can consider yourself a vegan given these strict rules you've set for the world. They're not my rules. So you've never killed an insect, never sat on a leather seat, never taken a drug that was tested on animals?
0: At least I don't order meat when a vegan option is on the menu.
2: And oversight.
0: How am I supposed to believe you?
2: Your problem is that you see veganism as all or nothing. I see veganism not so much as a destination, but as a journey. Occasionally, I might take a wrong turn. U-turn is more like it. I call myself Catholic and I still sin on occasion.
0: This is not a religion. We don't worship gods. Only animals.
2: So why are you standing here right now getting so worked up? You do realize that I'm just another imperfect human being.
0: You can say that again.
2: You know, it's people like you who give the cause a bad name. Me? How am I supposed to advance this movement when you're so busy attacking us?
0: advance this movement? You're eating the cattle drive special!
2: I don't have to answer to you.
0: Maybe not, but you have to answer to the animals. Where are you going?
2: I've lost my appetite. Good! You know, most people just ask for an autograph.
1: (sighs) I'm glad you didn't make a
0: scene. (sighs) He could have been lying. All along. All these years. Or this was, like he said, a one-time thing. I don't believe it. I think he's lying. That wasn't an oversight. That was one in a long series of deceptions that he's been perpetrating on vegans for years.
1: Why does this bother <sighs> you so much?
0: Because he he's a public figure, D, a leader. If people find out he's not vegan, they'll use it as just another excuse to go back to eating meat.
1: I don't know about that. Are people really that weak-willed? What are you doing?
0: Oh. We can't let his burger go to waste, now can we? Oh, see what I mean? Blake eats meat and now you're doing the same thing. Imagine how many thousands of people will abandon their diets when they hear the truth. So don't say anything. I don't understand. Everyone I know idolizes this man. What if they saw what I saw and just said nothing? Uh, perhaps there'd be a lot more vegans in the world? (sighs) Where are you going? I'm going to follow him so I can watch him eat dinner. Are you coming? Me? For better or for worse, remember?
1: I didn't realize that included stalking celebrities.
0: We're not stalkers. We're activists. We're doing this for the animals.
1: Can I be an activist after I finish this burger? For better or for worse, Dee. Me or that meat? (sighs) The things I do for animals.
3: Yay! Yay. Yay. Yeah, was... well done, you guys. I'm glad I had myself on mute because I was laughing a couple times. That's it's a f- John. I have to hand it to you. That is funny. <laughs> it made me laugh.
0: I love that D Marianne's character is just like focused on Donald Hayek. Like, my... <laughs> I, I know. I love. That. That's my favorite part. That's so fun. Uh, so wow, John, great job. I love how you can. Turn even just a brief encounter and a brief moment into like so many all the interesting, issues. yeah, all mm-hmm. the issues. Like you could you did that with Sanctuary. Like there were so many layers there, and even in this, like you know, ten minute or whatever play, they, there's so many layers there. And I guess I just wanted to have a little discussion about what some of them are. So let me start with this before we get into the actual issues what what was it that caused you to write this what was what was rattling around in your brain that came out this way
2: oh gosh it i'm sure actually i know it was a celebrity and i forget the exact person but it was someone who slid backwards if you will who suddenly for various reasons i forget what the reasons were decided that veganism wasn't quite for them maybe it was health or i don't know what I think it was on Twitter or something, and and there were so many people who were just devastated. And I and I thought about just the you know the cult of celebrity and and what if you know hypothetically we happen to see someone cheating, if you will. And and also there's the issue of defining veganism. You know this all or nothing uh, issue, and it it is tough. It's tough to to be a vegan because there's there's so many uh, layers to it, if you will. And there's been many lively discussions. Among vegans, you know what, you know how? What do you do? What do you? you, Is it okay to drive a car? Is it okay to garden? Is it okay to eat honey? Uh, uh, You know, there's so many uh, things and elements to it that I just thought this would be a a moment to capture. And I and I often say some of the great dramas happen over the dining room table, and this is (laughs) one of them.
1: Literally, yeah,
2: yeah. One of the
1: things I love about it, and maybe you'll all disagree. And maybe this is the wrong thing to take from it, John. But I love the fact that all three of them are kind of assholes
0: (laughs) in their own way. (laughs) Well, but they're assholes, but they're also, I mean, I'm not sure they're assholes. I think people are complex. I think that they have asshole qualities. You're so much more generous than I am. But I do think people are complex. And I think that that they're also all really likable in their own way, you know, and, and, Probably all of us listening could relate to pieces of each of them, you know. Like for example, I know what it's like to think Selma Hayek is hot. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that being said, I, I, you do you do present flawed characters. You you present characters with a lot of layers, and and I'm wondering if you could speak about that. Maybe you could both speak about that. Just like what it's like to build a character out who isn't necessarily going to just sort of be this cookie cutter.
2: Oh gosh. You know, well, I, I just think, you know, and I mentioned Catholicism. I mean, I was raised Catholic. I'm not an active practicing Catholic, but perhaps that has ruined me for life, if you will. But uh, talk <laughs> about being flawed and dealing with guilt and original sin and all of those elements. And, and uh, it just, and also and when you apply that to to the vegan movement, the animal rights movement, you know, my goal as, as a writer, as a publisher, is to is to create as wide an umbrella that ever you know get encourages many people to join. And it does bother me sometimes when, uh, you know, people say, "Well, it's just too hard. I can't do it." You know, I, and and that's why I love you know meatless Mondays and Veganary, vegan vegan is it Veganary? Veganuary. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I I love those. Training wheels, if you will, to kind of pull people along. Because honestly, when it, when I, before I became vegan, I, and I do remember what this was like, I just thought it was just too hard. You know, it was mm-hmm. just too too uh, steep a hill to climb. And you know, and so I am always kind of wrestling with that. I think with my writing and and always keeping in mind uh, young John, if you will, and how do I get him to climb on board? If and um, mm-hmm. so that's that's something I wrestle with a lot as a, as a writer.
1: I think that so many of us, I, I think everybody in this movement wrestles with those issues, maybe not as a writer. And, and it is kind of a special area, don't you think, as opposed to, like with environmentalism, if you do a little something one day that you know, isn't in accord with your principles, on the whole, you're following the lifestyle that you think you should. But with right. animals, there's that, that kind of factor that each of them is an individual who deserves to live. And so even if you slip a little bit, you're, you're taking somebody's life. but you're completely right that confronting people with the idea that they have to quit completely just shuts people down. So that messaging is so difficult, I think. And mm-hmm. fiction is certainly one of the ways to deal with a, a complex issue and have all the three characters struggling with it in different ways.
0: I'd love to hear, uh, Midge, if you have anything to add about characterization and kind of finding the grit there and how, like, what is the process like? Like, how do you make decisions of where a character is flawed or, or not to sound ignorant, but are you even making the decisions or is is it just when you're in your creative flow, is it just coming out? What's it like for you?
3: It's, I think it's a little of everything, actually. You know, as we were talking about earlier, it's all part of. It's about just listening to that muse and just going with it, and writing and writing, and letting the characters sort of talk. Because I really think they do. I'm always saying that writers are among those who can have hear voices in their heads, and you know, still be allowed to, you know, to be considered, you know, quote unquote normal. But you know, we do hear that our characters do talk to us, and so it's partly that. But it's also partly, as you were saying earlier, Jasmine, you know, characters are complex. You know, they're they're good and bad, not good or bad. And so you have to um, create them that way. And the one thing I'm always talking about with students is that you have to create conflict. You have to, that's where the, the core of any story is, is, you know, the characters, um, the conflict within themselves, the conflicts they have with each other that's kind of what drives a story. So in a way, you know, you're letting the characters um, speak on their own and become who they are meant to be. But then you also, as the writer, you have to sort of insert conflict if that's not coming up naturally. You, know, you have to figure out how are these, how's the story gonna unfold? And there's gotta be conflict there. And that's one thing I think John is really good at. And it's a really interesting issue among family, among couples, you know, vegans and non-vegans, uh, being in the same family. And I think John writes really well about those issues. Uh, we live it a little bit with our own families. I think we're the only vegans in our families. You know, my sister's veg and her daughter is, is partly veg, but, um, we're the only ones that are really sort of completely dedicated to that life. And they think it's a little weird, quite honestly, And we think they're a little weird, quite honestly, that they're not getting it. And so I think it's interesting. That is one of the best sources of conflict when you're writing about these issues. It also gives readers, you know, as Marianne was saying, it's hard to it's hard when people don't get it and we can't hit them over the head and make them get it. But when you when you write characters that are on a spectrum, you know, every every reader has a character, every listener of this you know, this play has someone they can relate to. They can relate Mm -hmm. to flipping as a vegan, they can relate to why would I not eat a real burger or they can relate to this is my lifestyle? I could never eat an animal. So there if there's someone who can relate to each character in a story, then that goes a long way. And by doing that by sort of, you know, enjoying the story and feeling like they belong in it, they can see all the other sides of it as well, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the conflict here, well, there's several. But one of them that I also really appreciated in the sanctuary is that that conflict between vegan and omnivore, relationshiping. And so why, why do you keep going back to that? Is it just like, is it like endless roads for, for expression and questions or like, what? can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Gosh, that's a good question. You're right. I realized uh, this as we were talking that I do hit on this theme a lot. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, Midge and I are on the same page, but gosh, we, we do know of couples that, uh, have struggled with this and do struggle with this. And, you know, it's funny, you, uh, when you, you aired Sanctuary, I think it was last year and someone wrote to me whose marriage fell apart as a result of this. And she, oh. uh, so it is, it is a real issue. I I try to make, I obviously try to make light of it in, in veganish and, and there's a lot of humor, but it's tough. I think, you know, I see the great dramas happen over the dining room table. You talk about courage. It's, it takes a lot of courage sometimes to, Try to redefine the marriage dynamic, the the romantic dynamic. Whatever you know, a lot of couples you get married or you commit to one another, and you you kind of say this is who I am, mm-hmm. and then a mm-hmm. few years later you redefine who you are, and and how does the other person react to that? And do they join you? And do you respect them if they don't join you? And you know, I know that you hear a lot in culture about you know a Democrat married to a Republican. I think that's trivial compared to this because this is something Mm -hmm. where you can have an argument, three meals a day. You know, I mean, this is, this is big. This is, it's, it's everywhere. And it's, it's, a it feels, I mean, I, I honestly, the Republican Democrat one is tough to get my head around as well, but this one's (laughs) a little
1: out (laughs) of date. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: know. It's things have changed a great deal. There were uh, in that regard as well, but, but this is, this is tough. And, um, I, you know, I just, I guess I keep coming back to it because I, I do want, I want to pull people along and I do think humor can, can somehow do that a little bit. I want to demystify it. I do make fun of vegans, you know, myself included, because I do worry about, um, sometimes there's, there's an illusion for non-vegans that vegans are perfect. They live a perfect life and they've, uh, I am, and that's and that's not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the exception of Marianne, uh, most of us vegans we we struggle, you know, uh, and 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 the word itself. I love the word, and I use that word I uh, um, to describe myself. But you know, it's like with uh, the, saying you know you can't be a little bit wet. You're either wet or you're dry, and you can't be. little bit vegan and some people believe that but i i ask with this play can you be a little bit vegan can you can you be vegan ish and isn't you know and and that's something you know i struggle with because i garden and there's insects out there and i know through doing it i am killing them and somehow and and you know that's something we all you know organic agriculture i went through this gardening is a big thing now because i've been doing this now and i went Mm -hmm. through a program and I didn't even know there. You can have or I used, to, I used to think organic agriculture was vegan agriculture. It is not. I mean, they, there's mm-hmm. pesticides and mm-hmm. and you just kind of have to accept that. There is veganic agriculture now, and I've been doing more research into mm-hmm. that. But that's this this rabbit hole we all go down when you become vegan. Is right. everywhere you turn, you discover something new, and it's and it is tough, and it is. I there's a lot of humor there, obviously, that I try to find the humor in it but it's also can be really difficult uh, in families and work and and everywhere else just
1: the fact that i mean obviously it's impossible to be perfect it's impossible to eliminate every animal product from your life but so many people one of the reasons i think it's such a rich topic is that so many people use that as an excuse to do nothing rather than to draw those uh difficult lines and so Mm. anybody who's trying to draw. well i i would put cattle burger a little beyond the pale myself i'm not gonna lie (laughs) but anybody who's trying to legitimately draw those lines i think that's where the heroism is involved uh in in trying to do this not trying to be perfect but trying Mm -hmm. to draw the right lines
2: yeah Yeah. it is easy to just give up in face of it and that's why dystopian literature is so popular Mm -hmm. that's why i don't write dystopian full-on dystopian because that that just it's too easy to say oh I can't do it. You know, the world's coming to an end anyway. So why bother? I I don't subscribe to that. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but because it's a lot harder to not subscribe to that and actually work and, and fail and and learn and, and just do your best and to accept the fact that you're going to do harm. You know, it's not about being perfect. We're all going to do make mistakes and, and step on, uh, insects and, and so forth, but we do our best and hopefully we get better with time, and and that's that's our fate in life, I think, to do our best.
0: Well, I I also want to point out the humor because Midge said she was laughing. I also find this lightness, this levity, this like poking fun of each other and ourselves, this like reflection of the ridiculous parts of myself in the characters, a a breath of fresh air in your work. And, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a vegan lesbian, so I'm not funny and just inherently like it it goes against my people where we don't have humor, but so, (sighs) (laughs) I mean, but you know, like I, I, I kid, but there is this, there is this heavy weight because what we're dealing with is, So gigantic and you have to laugh like you have to it's like a release valve and it makes me think of like when you're in the heat of an argument with like your your partner or whatever and like as soon as someone just in the like you're having a temper tant you're crying and then someone says something light and funny or the dog pees in the middle of the carpet at that moment or something you need to like you need it you need it and and so i just would love it if you could speak a little bit about your relationship with humor in your work
2: it's funny because i i write a lot of i have written a lot of plays and and i hope to write more and i actually wrote another another short play that interestingly enough takes place in around thanksgiving i i'm obsessed with thanksgiving i don't know maybe it's the you know, I'm I'm obsessed with rituals, traditions that get blindly passed down from one generation to the next. And so I, I think there, you know, and, and humor, humor is just a great way to, like you said, break the tension to make the pain slightly less painful because there is so much pain in the world that, so, you know, you know i, I the, w- what we see once you see it you can't unsee it and now we all in, in this in this movement you do see it and you see it everywhere and it hurts and what's really hard is is things aren't changing as quickly as they need to change they're just not and it drives me you know dri- i'm sure it drives us all bonkers but you know i i think humor has an important role to to hopefully easing our pain a little bit but ho- also i think it it makes the movement a little more welcoming there are vegans who can come across uh, as, as preachy. I've been accused of it more than a few times, even in my writing, and I am very sensitive to that. And so I, I think humor does help somehow bypass that little uh, – uh, guard that people have that they put up if the minute you mention animal rights or th- use the V word. Uh, so that, that to me, I'm always looking for ways to kind of break through those those barriers that, that we have uh, uh, enacted to, uh, to avoid thinking about these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I just have one or two more questions. I, I want to go back to what you said earlier about celebrity worship, which is obviously <laughs> reflected in the play, because nobody does celebrity work- worship better than vegans, And or actually, you know, the another community, I'm a part of the LGBTQ community. We're pretty good at it, too. And then, like, suddenly that that awesome lesbian is dating a man and we're all like, what? you know, and it's not exactly the same because it's not unethical for a woman to date a man. Well, no, it's not. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) but but like, you know, we, we put these people on a pedestal and we kind of have to, because we need to like use them to validate, like, see, she's doing it. And then she has 5 zillion fans on Instagram. And now, now like, one percent of them are doing it and that's a giant amount of people but then suddenly the worst possible scenario they stop doing it so can you speak a little bit about what what your thoughts are on celebrity culture and like where you think you know what kind of experience you think my character jess was having it when she was when she saw her idol eating a burger
2: It's existential, right? It's uh, it's there's so much identity wrapped up in in you know celebrity and who you 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 admire and follow and uh, and then you celebrities have great power and influence. Uh, They have you know they've they've influenced probably millions of people to try veganism. So I don't want to say it's not important, but there is always the danger that one of these great influencers says, "Eh, forget it." didn't work going back to meet. Sorry. And then all these followers are, are suddenly, uh, faced with this decision to make. I wanted to, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, I wanted to say it, what's most important is, is you've got to make that decision for yourself and not, not rely too heavily on, on what the celebrities are doing, even though, mm-hmm. cause they're, you know, they're people too. And they are gonna change, and um, we want them all to, and I'd love them all to be vegan and stay vegan, but um, many have not kept kept up to that. And, and sometimes when I see something on Twitter uh, or, instagram about someone so-and-so going vegan i i kind of cringe because i think oh no give it a year it's like so-and-so just got married you know you're like okay (laughs) yeah give it six months it's something and that that that's hard because you you on one hand it's like oh it's great they're vegan but then if they change Mm -hmm. then suddenly the anti-vegans are like well look didn't work out can't do it. Right. I'm not going to do it. Nothing, you know. It, it, it kind of reinforces yeah. the the opposing view. So it, it's you know it is what it is, but it's certainly great uh, a great source of humor.
0: Well, I have in my head like an all day John yunker play festival. <laughs> I just I I think that it. I love your writing. I love the way you. You write characters. I think sometimes I still think about your characters, like as if like who was that person I knew that time? Why am I, why am I thinking about them? And then I'll realize that they were fiction. And I mean, I guess so. Uh, kind of in closing, um, and uh, Midge, I'd love to hear your perspective on this because you're writing a lot of characters too. Do you ever have that thought about a character, like you start thinking about them, and then you realize that it is your character and you world built them and you are actually in control of what happens next because that is a that's a great suddenly like six hours went by and you were just in your head thinking about that person not and that's like not a real person are we all just like completely insane (laughs) should we all be committed or what
3: (laughs) no we're writers which means it's okay so yeah, it's it's true. You become so attached to your characters, and I become attached to characters in books. And when I find a writer I like, I just sort of like get really anxious about when their next book is coming out. <laughs> yeah, I get a- I get very attached to my characters. My last continent came about because I wrote a short story that featured Deb, who became you know the main character in that novel. Um, it's hard to let them go sometimes. I try, and that's the only. Um, Actually, no, it's not true. I actually wrote another novel based on um, that never actually went anywhere, but it was based on a, on a character I really liked from another story. So yeah, you do find it hard to let go of them. Um, they become people, but it's, it's the best compliment um, you can give a writer for you know when you sort of remember a character. So um, it's cool to both do that and, and keep them in your own head, but it's even better to read them and you know, have another writer do that for you. So that's, that's just such a great sign. It's, it's why I read for sure.
0: And probably right to some extent, yeah. Too. I mean, you You people are power mad. You're world builders. So, let's talk about Ashland Creek Press and what's going on there. What you're what you're currently jazzed about? And I I do get a quarter every time I say jazz. So, (laughs) what are you jazzed about at Ashland Creek Press?
2: First off, you had a wonderful interview with Catherine, uh, for Mm -hmm. the author of Saving Animals, which we just published. Which worth it. Yeah, you know, we talk. I I talk about I hate dystopian worldviews. Read that book and read about the next generation of 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 people. Uh, you know, kids basically who are. When I was their age, I was playing video games or I was out riding my bike. I had no thoughts about the world and making it a better place. And it's just inspiring to see what's mm-hmm. coming and and to see these 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 young adults, children and young adults who are changing the world and. We do have a novel that's coming out in spring that we're really excited about. Uh, Midge can what tell, is it? Tell, tell, you want to tell, oh. tell them the title?
3: Yes. Yeah. And I, I want to just add that I'm loving the interview with Catherine on, say, about saving animals on the podcast. I'm about halfway oh. through it now. It's been a busy week, but it's wonderful. And I'm so Thank glad you, you guys-
0: that's Catherine Kelleher for anyone who is wondering who Catherine is. And I too loved it. And she stayed up really late to talk to me because we have like a, she's in Australia. We had a big time difference. And then we just stayed on afterwards and kept chatting. She is a phenomenal human being. And I'm thrilled that you published that book because I absolutely love saving animals.
3: Yeah. Thank you guys for your support of that book. We love it too. And we love Catherine. She's incredible. Yeah. Our next book we're super excited about. It's coming out February of 2022. So right in the middle of, you know, getting it all organized, edited, laid out, etc. It's called My Dark Green Euphoria by A.E. Copenhaver. Yeah. And um, it's, it was the winner of last, the last Siskiyou Prize we had, the 2019 Siskiyou Prize for New Environmental Literature, judged by Carol Adams. Um, it's an incredible novel. It's basically about a um, young millennial woman who has incredible eco-anxiety, just everything in the world from, she worries about stepping on insects and she dumpster dives, not because she wants to, but it's the right thing to do for the planet. And she doesn't eat animals or wear animals or and she tries to keep her carbon footprint as light as possible. And then she meets her boyfriend's mom, who is the exact opposite. She drives a big gas guzzler and eats whatever she wants and wastes, you know, (laughs) there's waste in every aspect of her life. And she kind of goes under this spell where it's almost like a drug and it's such relief to not have to worry all the time. And it's all about that journey and coming out of it and finding the balance in her life. And the author is is a wonderful writer and hilarious. And I think it's probably the first book that we've published that's that has humor as a main component. I think all the novels that um, we've published at Ashton Creek Press have a fair amount of humor like, you know, in them. But this one feels a lot like a comedy. You know, It's very rare to actually oh. laugh out loud while reading a novel, I think. But both of us yeah. did that when we were reading it. So we're very excited about that one. That sounds wonderful. Oh, yeah, wonderful.
0: seriously, I can relate to a lot of that. I'm sure <laughs> Marianne can too, like... <laughs> It is. That that sounds great. Well, you'll definitely, we'll have to have the author on at that time. That sounds incredible. And so please tell our listeners how they can follow you online and get involved in your efforts.
3: We are at ashlandcreekpress.com. We have a mailing list. And also you can find us at ecolitbooks.com. That's where we hold our, h- host our online bookstore and you know shop. And th- we have, there's a free newsletter for that as well at ecolitbooks.com. So yeah, do that and stay in touch. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. And in- Twitter is Ashland Press. Instagram is Ashland Creek Press. We're on Facebook. So find us anywhere.
0: Wonderful. Well, John, what's next for you? What do you have? Are you writing more plays? Can Marianne uh, look forward to another part? <laughs> I expect to have a part for me in
1: all of your work from now on. You got
2: Charlie. it. You got it. Uh, yeah, I keep. I keep writing. I'm writing a, a number of things. Midge and I have written a novel and uh, together. So you know, and we've written play. You know, there's plays. You name it. I and I. I'm still in the early days of a of another uh, novel to to follow up the inevitable conclusion of the tourist trail series. But woo. Um,
0: I'm so excited. That, that's going to take
2: a while. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's very slow, but, um, yeah, no, yeah. just writing, writing and publishing. That's, that's what yeah. we do.
0: Well, thank you so much. This was really very fun. Like very fun. <laughs> I love playing. I love acting. I love your work. I love talking about creative expression as a means of social change. I hope that other people do that. They take your writing class. And, uh, I look forward to that one day, all day, John Yanker uh, play, play festival. Cause, uh, I, I see it. I, I see it in my in my head.
1: Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our henhouse part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties arising. rising. Our first story is, is like one of my favorites in the world. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen with this, but are you aware of the uh, Oregon ballot initiative that's currently being uh, worked on by animal rights groups? There's a similar one going on in Colorado, and this article is about it. And uh, they just apparently passed their first hurdle of getting uh, a certain number of, of initial signatures, and then they're going to have to go out and get gazillions of signatures. Uh, they got 1,000 sponsorship signatures, if it's approved, um, they will need to collect 112,020 signatures to get on the ballot in November of 2022. All right. So what are they doing here? According to this article, which is uh, from the Capitol Press, anti-animal ag initiative raises alarm among Oregon farm groups. Well, I bet it does. And the first line of the this, I, I kind of I just kind of feel like reading this whole article. Animal agriculture could soon be considered an animal cruelty under a proposed ballot measure in Oregon. Now, what they're doing in here is just kind of taking away all of the exemptions for animal agriculture from the cruelty law. That's all. They're not making it illegal to eat meat or anything radical sounding. I think to most people, this would sound pretty like regular. They just, they're just just not exempt from cruelty laws. But as this article points out, The result would effectively criminalize everything from slaughtering livestock to basic animal husbandry, including branding and dehorning cattle, castrating bulls and docking horses, sheep and and pigs. Uh, And this is from Marianne Cooper, who's vice president of public policy for the Oregon Farm Bureau. They also seek to reclassify livestock breeding and artificial insemination, according to this article, as sexual assault of an animal, which is exactly what it is. And as Cooper said, quote, it's a very different tact than we have ever seen before. Basically, they're looking to ban anything with animals that is not doctoring. Uh, Sounds good to me. According to this article, according to state law, a person commits animal abuse if they intentionally, knowingly or recklessly cause physical injury to an animal. That's pretty normal. Or cruelly cause the death of an animal. That's pretty normal. Except when practicing good animal husbandry. Well, doesn't that like just just make the assumption that uh, good animal husbandry includes cruelly causing the death of an animal and intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly causing physical injury? Well, of course it does. So if you remove those exemptions, they're completely screwed. So uh, as the the supporters of Yes on 13, IP13, say, IP13 doesn't change our definition of abuse. It merely changes who is considered above the law. Don't you love that messaging? So they're pretty upset about it. They're talking about 4-H programs and how how uh, they would be made illegal. They're always talking about 4-H programs. It's like like it would, it would make everything they do illegal. But they're going to talk about the 4-H programs because they think people are sympathetic to them. And according to the campaign website, again, it would require that animals be allowed to truly live a good life free from abuse, neglect, and sexual assault. God, that just sounds like something that a lot of people would vote for, doesn't it? But as a Tom Sharp, a rancher, president of the Oregon Cattlemen's Association, said, that is not an economically viable business model for producers. So animals living good lives, uh, free from abuse, neglect, and sexual assault, is definitely not an economically viable business model. It also says um, that they, the animals should be able to live their full and natural lifespan. Well, that sounds reasonable to people, doesn't it? They don't know they're killed when they're babies. It would also not just animal agriculture, but erase animal cruelty exemptions for hunting, fishing, wildlife management, rodeos, and scientific research, among others. So the hunters are upset about it too. Removing the exemptions, says one of these, uh, Amy Patrick, outreach coordinator for Oregon Hunters Association says, removing the exemptions would allow them to be classified as animal abuse. It's not animal abuse by any stretch of the imagination. Like, just think about that quote. If it's not animal abuse by any stretch of the imagination, Why would removing an exemption for you (laughs) allow it to be classified as animal abuse? Like, (laughs) oh my, they're screwed. Well, we'll see what happens. The chances of them getting this passed, I don't know. Like, who knows? It's a weird world. And if nothing else, it's going to bring some attention to what they really do to animals. All right, from MeetingPlace.com, from Danette Amstein, who writes the Marketer's Lens column. Carbon footprint, the on-pack label you didn't know you needed. Okay, they're upset by the fact that everybody's starting to catch on to the fact that they are uh, causing uh, climate disaster and water pollution and all the rest of it. So she thinks that most of the companies, have meat companies, have set good uh, goals. And she says a review of those sustainability goals suggests that future messaging will revolve around water, climate, and or energy use with a timeline of 2030 and beyond for the victory parties. Yeah, right. Well, you know, she's a marketer. So what she's talking about basically is getting a hold of this issue, getting it away from people who are pointing out the truth and starting to do some labeling. We are entering a time, she says, we're not talking about carbon footprint could be extremely detrimental. Why? Because no messaging could quickly become a signal to environmentally conscious consumers that your company and products are not focused on addressing this issue. Well, yeah, and apparently there's a lot of research showing that this is, this is uh, an issue that actually really affects consumption habits, of so a pretty significant portion of the public. And one of the other reasons they have to get on board, don't you just love this? One reason is the fact that alt-protein companies are using carbon labeling to differentiate their products. Uh, So she wants them to get on board. She says to rectify this, we need to collect new data. Apparently the data they've got isn't that good. (laughs) And she does say it should be authenticated by a third party. So, uh, you know, we shouldn't look like we're scamming anybody. So we can raise the tide for the entire industry with new and improved averages. Uh, Yeah, get new data. And how do you know your new data ahead of time? How do you know it's going to be good for you? I don't think it will. Uh, Well, maybe your data will. The meat industry, she says, should receive credit for the hard work we have already done and the strides we are making now to further reduce our carbon footprint. Carbon labeling on meat packages is a key step in making that happen. Yeah, this sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen, doesn't it? Uh I hope so. I wonder if anybody's working on that. All right, another, they're just being driven crazy this week um, from drovers.com. Misguided ruling could upend the lives of many hog farmers, Sorensen says. So this is to do with this ruling. In a case that was brought by labor unions, had to do with, you know, the how, how they've like vastly increased the, the line speed in uh, pig slaughterhouses. According to this article, a recent federal district court ruling, if left unchallenged, will result in a 2.5% loss in pork packing plant capacity nationwide and more than $80 million in reduced income for small U.S. They're always worried about the small U.S. hog farmers. Are there really any small hog? I guess there are some. I don't know. But um, the National Pork Producers Council is all upset about this. They're asking the USDA to intervene. And there was also a case brought, which I guess um, is on similar issues, by... Uh, animal activist groups, but this one was the one brought by the the labor union that has had this successful decision that the federal court said, no, you can't do this. Uh, so it says here, the federal court's decision struck down a provision of USDA's new swine inspection system, adopted industry-wide in 2019, that allows for fastest harvest facility line speeds. Harvest facility, that's what they're calling them in this article. They come up with so many, you know, like plant, <laughs> the plant. This is Harvest Facility. Uh, They're talking about, of course, slaughterhouses, and they're talking about doing it faster, and they're talking about even more cruelty to animals. Well, no, they're not talking about any cruelty to animals because that would never enter their minds. And as Minnesota hog farmer Danny Schwerin says, if we can't pay our people because the funds aren't coming in, we have to let them go. In a small community, while we're a large employer, removing the jobs from our community is detrimental to these families and the vitality of the community as a whole. They're always worried about the small farmer's and the small communities, no, nobody's worried about, the, you know, Smithfield or any of that. No, no, it's we're much more noble than that. And that they are anxious this week, aren't they? That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able... You can support us by joining the flock at OurHenHouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with.
1: Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts. Or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at our OurHenHouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course... Tell your friends about us.
0: If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services.
1: We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks
0: so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.